Well, as we said off the beginning, welcome to the second part in our 40 days of prayer as we uh, talk about repentance. And before we get into a little bit of a study on uh, repentance, um, it is interesting to me how uh, in today's life, in today's world, that uh, one of the things that we long to do is to take photos of our favorite moments, right? Uh, if something great is happening, the whole gang's gathered together for a Christmas dinner or something exciting's happening that we can see or even if there's something that's shocking, uh, we want to, to video it, to tape it, to get it out and to, to make it live somehow so that we can, we can share it. Um, you know, my, my big thing is that uh, um, recently I've just been taking pictures of our dog and we've been putting those up online because our dog is really fun and I want to share those moments uh, with everyone. Uh, Krista has, uh, oh, did I give that away? I'm sorry. Uh, the dog actually has her own Instagram account. Uh, Krista helps her with that, but the dog actually has her own Instagram account just for fun uh, because we want to share uh, pictures and videos of what's happening with the dog. But you may remember a time when you could not take pictures of everything. It was really hard, wasn't it? Now, we used to have just a, now we have a camera right in our phone, and that's one of the reasons why we buy phones, why we update our phones, so that we can create and, and remember these moments. Uh, but there was a time when we didn't have phones, right? And there was a time when if we wanted a photo, we had to break out a camera and we had to go find it and we had to make sure it was charged. And if you're old enough, you may even remember that you couldn't even look at the picture immediately. You had to just assume that, hey, this is going to be fine. And in the back of the camera, there'd be this black roll of what they used to call film. Archaeologists call it film. And you would take that and you would take it to a place that uh, historians reference as a development center or a, a place where you could get the pictures developed and you would leave it with them and in a 24-hour period or longer, they would print off the photos and you would hope they would turn out okay. And then, then you would take those photos, those favorite moments, those few and far between things, and you would place them in what scholars called photo albums. And they would be physical objects with pictures inside them. Those, those things that got developed, you would put them in there. And if you wanted to share them with someone, you had to go and you had to take that book off of your shelf and you had to physically show them. It was hard to capture your favorite moments. Now, we can do it instantly. So let me ask you, in light of thinking of your favorite moments, how come we don't take photos of church? Not guilting, just wondering. Why, why not? It's respect or we don't want to do that. I go to a great church service, I want to take pictures. I want to capture that moment and remember what was happening at that moment. I, I love that kind of, of interaction. But, if we're honest, it's because even today, our greatest moments aren't photographed. So, in light of the fact that not everything that's awesome got taken as a photo on your phone, let me ask you to think about what was your favorite church moment a 
of your life? What was your favorite church moment? As a matter of fact, if people want to describe this is, you know, church, they may have a not-so-favorite church moment. But think now to your favorite church moment. What do you think the favorite church moment is? Maybe, um, maybe it was memory of serving in a ministry somewhere that really made an impact in people's lives. Or maybe it was a big turnout at an event, you know, uh, the statistics tell us that the majority, over 50% of churches in America are under 100 people in size. But from time to time, those churches will gather together for a community event or a denominational event or they'll do something like that. And then they will uh, see this larger crowd, larger number, and it will be just amazing. It may have been something like a, a worship concert with a speaker. Or maybe it was a, a rally, or maybe it was a revival, or maybe it was called a crusade. Maybe it was something like that that was your favorite church moment of your life. Or maybe it was a song that moved you to tears while you sang it. As Krista mentioned, the, sometimes we sing songs and we're, they move us and we're elated and sometimes uh, they, they, you know, they cause us to cry and they cause us to cry in a good way, not because the song was performed poorly, but because it was a good, good song that spoke to you in the moment where you're at. And there's emotion in that and you remember that. And then every time forward, when you hear that song, you hear, you remember that moment. Or maybe it was a particular message or a sermon, perhaps from your favorite tall, skinny, handsome Canadian pastor. That was slower than I would have liked, but I appreciate the response in the, in the positive. That was good. So in that light, as you think about what your favorite moment in your life about church was for you. Now let me switch the focus a little bit. That's your favorite moment. If you were to guess, what do you think God's favorite moment in church is? What's God's favorite moment? When I was um, growing up in high school, we did a lot of youth rallies. And once a year, we went and joined with, uh, I think it was, I think around 15 or 20 different youth groups. And we rented out a, a sports camp, an organization rented out a sports camp. So it had lots of activities like ropes and, you know, all the really uh, exciting stuff that you could do in free time. It was always a highly attended event. Uh, and we would go to these youth rallies and they'd bring in a, a high profile speaker who I never heard of. I'm a teenager. I don't really follow a lot of Christian speakers yet, but they'd bring in this guy who's funny and, and he, he was just really a great communicator and... At the end of, this, end of the weekend, we were having worship service on Sunday morning, a church service together. And in his message, he said, you know, I bet God's been speaking to you this weekend. And I want you to go and follow up what God's been asking you to do. And so, before we finish the service today, we're just going to stop everything. And I'm going to give you time to go and make things right with other people if you need to make things right. And I'll never forget that scene 
as hundreds of high school students started to stand up and walk around and find their friends or find their youth leaders and start to confess, here's something I said, here's something I did, here's something that I did to you, here's something that I did that I need to make right, I need to confess, I need to repent. I was one of those kids. I got up and found some other kids from the youth group I apologize for some things that I had thought about them, that I had said about them that were wrong. And I had pushed them down, way, way down, that I thought, I don't have to do anything. They just have to get over it. And so as the worship band started to come up to get ready to play, nobody stopped doing this. The band started to play, and people kept repenting to each other. They literally practiced what Jesus taught, where if you come with an offering, if you come uh, ready to make your offering at the altar, and you know that your brother or sister has something against you, you leave. And you go and you make things right before you offer that offering. They put that into practice. I am convinced that God's favorite moment in church is when people repent. However, there's just not a lot of pictures of repentance on anybody's social media. As a matter of fact, the stuff we put on social media is the stuff we want people to see, not the stuff we don't want people to see. Repentance is this private thing. Repentance, you just don't get a photograph of that. However, I'm convinced both experientially and scripturally that repentance is God's favorite moment in church. And I think we see that in Scripture. I think we see it because it unlocks our best potential for our best life. I think we see this early on in the life of Israel as David had died and Solomon starts to build the temple. And they build this temple. They say it's complete. And God says, I choose to enter in here. And as he enters in here, he says a famous verse that you all know. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I think we see this in the teaching of Jesus when he's talking about uh, what motivates him and what motivates heaven when he's talking about the lost sheep, lost coins, lost sons, and he says this, I tell you that in the same way there will be more people rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. I think we see this in the promise that John would write in, in his letters in, the, in uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John when we read this. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And notice that John is writing to believers here. So this is something for believers and for unbelievers that when we fall, God longs for nothing more than for us to return to Him. And when we confess, when we repent, then we are purified from all unrighteousness. It's a fresh start, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Whether you've fallen for the first time or fallen for the thousandth time. 
That's God's longing, and that's His promise. And then Jesus says something that I wrote about this week on Facebook regarding the attack on the Capitol. That I think if Christians are going to lead the way in dealing with truth, which is the problem our nation faces, is everyone saying, I know the truth, you don't. Christians know the truth from God's word. And Jesus says, if you're going to judge people wisely, you must do this. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and this week what we saw was, I'm going to force the speck out of your eye. When all the time there was a plank in your own. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eyes. Look at this verse. The size of what someone else believes versus what you believe if it's in error and how it infects everything that you see. Plank versus just a little bit of sawdust. But what Jesus is saying is not just condemning by calling us hypocrites. He's saying if we get this right, if we learn how to judge what is happening in the world wisely, then we remove the plank from our own eye first. We deal with our presuppositions and we repent from whatever it is that we need to repent from we are then able to lead others into God's truth. We're able to help others find God. But first, we must make sure we are right with God before we club them over the head with the plank in our eye. Repentance is essential to life. So why is it that we don't see repentance in the church more often? We're going to talk about that this morning. I think one of the reasons, though, is that we love to promote what we want people to see. And we don't want to promote what we don't want other people to see. But as we start into our understanding of repentance, I want you to understand two things. The one is that repentance has always been a public display. And secondly, um, repentance in the church is the place where it happens. It's the best place for it to happen. It's like going to the hospital when you need surgery, not going to a back alley and finding someone who, you know, knew a guy who knew a guy who knew a guy who may be able to set a bone right? It's the right place to repent. You look at scripture and you imagine what it would have been like for someone to know that they needed to be right with God. And the way they were going to be right with God was they would take their best animal and they would start walking towards the temple. They would start walking towards the tabernacle. And imagine what the neighbors would say. 
If they saw you getting the best animal ready and they saw you headed in a particular direction, they knew that some, Joe had done something. <laughs> you don't know what, but you knew it was public. And we're afraid of being found out. And I don't get that. It is concerning to me as a pastor and let alone as a Christian how little we deal with issues of repentance among the church family, the immediate church that you and I participate in life together with. So we're going to talk about that today. Because I think it's something that we should celebrate as much as we celebrate people coming to Christ, as much as we celebrate baptisms. But there's a particular way that we celebrate repentance. So we're going to talk about all of these things. And as we talk about them, I want you to just ask yourself one question. We're going to talk about what repentance is and how we can repent using a series of framework that Jesus has given us. But as we talk about that, I just want you to dwell on this one thing in the back of your mind. When was the last time I did that? Okay? The easiest thing for us to do, with the, as we saw in the idea of the uh, speck of sawdust and the plank, is that we minimize our own sin and our own need for repentance, and we maximize other people's need to deal with their sin and to repent. And so as we wrestle through this talk, I want you to just ask yourself, when was the last time I repented? When was the last time I did that? And know that this is a safe place to wrestle through that. There's, going to not, there's not going to be a quiz afterwards where you have to say, you know, honestly, we're not going to do that. We're going to give you a framework for how to journey together in repentance. But just ask yourself honestly, when was the last time that was true of me? Okay. So let's dive right in and talk about what on earth are we talking about when we talk about repentance. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we studied this at the beginning of the pandemic. It's a whole letter that Peter wrote to the scattered church about how to suffer well for Jesus. Talk about a well-timed series that I didn't pick. It just happened and it worked out great for us um, in that regard. I think it really helped us approach the pandemic in just spiritual ways. Peter would write this, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you, what's the word? Do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy in all you do. The definition of repentance is not just saying, God I'm sorry. It is a willful act to turn from your ways, your former ways, to live in God's ways. There was a great definition of repentance that was given uh, by Eugene Peterson on the Bible Gateway website back in 2019. He wrote this. There's 
an interesting history of the word repentance. The word in Hebrew means originally to take a deep breath and sigh. I thought about actually having you do that today, but we'll skip that just for time. (laughs) It's a deep feeling of sorrow and remorse. Repentance at the root at the very beginning seems to have the idea that you realize you have done something wrong and you feel badly about it. And you feel it deeply. It gets down deep inside you and you groan or sigh or you breathe deeply. All of us know how that works, right? We know that part of repentance. We know that part that has to do with our feelings. But the interesting thing about repentance in the Bible is that that understanding didn't last very long. Very quickly, the writers began to shift what they were saying and substituted another word for the same action. And this other word meant return or turn around and go. Not a word of feeling at all, but a word of action. And under the influence of the prophets, repentance became not something you felt, but something you did. And it's essential you get that through your heads if you are going to understand what the Bible means about repentance. I've never heard Eugene Peterson write that strongly before. You, it's essential that you get it through your heads if you are going to understand what the Bible means about repentance. You don't repent by taking a deep breath and then feeling better. You only repent when you turn around and go back or toward God. It doesn't make any difference how you feel. You can have the feeling, or you don't have to have the feeling. What's essential is that you do something. The call to repentance is not a call to feel the remorse of your sins. It's a call to turn around so that God can do something about them. It's a willful act to turn from your sinful ways, to live God's ways. Now, that's what Eugene Peterson wrote last couple of years ago. But that doesn't mean that it's wrong to feel that sorrow. It's just saying that feeling sorry and saying sorry is not proof of repentance. It's no different than our child who says, I'm sorry when you catch them sneaking a cookie before dinner, which is against what you've given them as instructions, no desserts before dinner. And they say, I'm sorry, and you say, okay, and then they go and do it again. It's change. Repentance is to change directions, a willful act to turn from your sinful ways to live God's ways. It's a turnaround so that God can do something with your sin. So where does our need for repentance show up in life? Where, what do we need to repent from? This is where we get into kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about uh, today. What do we repent from? We repent from anything that stops us from trusting God first in any area of our lives. Let me say that again. We repent from anything that stops us from trusting God first in any area of our lives. Now, as you know, uh, I shared this last week, but as you know, the uh, national office staff uh, 
those who are pastors and leaders in our denomination and missionaries have all come together to work on a set of, uh, you know, preaching guides and preaching notes. And the next part that we're going to talk about was provided by, most of actually what we're, we've been talking about so far is provided by uh, Amy Roding. Amy Roding is the Director for International Placement at the Christian Missionary Alliance. And she made an amazing observation that I think is just so, so helpful when we think about, so how do I process how I'm living honestly so that I can remove the plank from my eye? She suggests that the first three chapters of Revelation, Jesus is really, really clear that churches, a.k.a. people, but not just people, also church leaders need to repent. That no one is beyond this need for evaluation to see if there is any sinful way in us that we might repent of it and be made righteous in God's eyes. And Jesus is really clear all through those chapters that if churches don't do this, if people don't do it, if leaders don't do it, that those sinful choices, sinful people, the unrepentance would destroy those churches in some way and fashion. And Jesus is really clear. He knows what those churches are in what they need to repent from. And I think Amy's right. I think we can use these as a guideline for areas in our lives where we can repent from. So we're going to journey through, as quick as possible, the seven churches that Jesus talks about in the first three chapters of Revelation. We're going to have the verses up for you on the screen, uh, but uh, just follow along with me because we're going to do like a flyby. Here's ways that we can evaluate what do we need to repent from? So let's start with Ephesus. We're going to find uh, what Jesus wants to talk about to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 to 5. And that says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, the church would be removed. It would no longer be part of the kingdom because they are worshiping something else. In other words, their sin is idolatry. They have forgotten that their first love is God. And they have said, well, I can worship God and... I can have these other things. I want these blessings, perhaps, these good things. I want this in my life. And God and this is the way that I'm going to have that. And God is a jealous God, and he will have no other gods before him. And so one of the questions that we can ask is, do we need to repent from idolatry? Having something we love more than God. Then let's move on to Smyrna. You'll find Smyrna in Revelation 2, verses 9 and 10. And it's there we read that, um, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's 
crown. Jesus doesn't say there's anything that they need to repent from, but he gives them a warning of what's coming. And he gives them a warning of what's coming because they're going to be tempted to walk away from God's ways. They're going to be tempted to believe, I can't trust God because this is happening to them. It's already happening to them. They're in deep poverty. And they're wondering, how come God hasn't provided? And Jesus is saying, your faith has made you rich. Hang on. It will get worse. But if you are victorious, I will give you a victor's crown. Have you ever been tempted because of what you don't have? Because you felt like God hasn't provided for you financially, economically? Be careful. There is no holiness without suffering. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. We read in the book of Romans, I believe. So it's a challenge to be faithful even if we're facing death. So just be ready. Be ready for those kinds of things that we will want to walk away. They don't have to repent, but be ready. Let's move on to Pergamum. You'll find the Pergamum uh, concern in Revelation 2, verses 14 to 16, and it's in there we read that, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In Pergamum, they're to repent from tolerating false teaching and sexual sin. In Thyatira, in Revelation 2, verses 20 and 23, we read, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, but by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. And then all of the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay you, each of you, according to your deeds. There was two issues here. One was a woman who was teaching people that uh, your spiritual life is disconnected from your uh, physical life. That you know, Jesus has made you whole, has made you clean, uh, so therefore you can live however you want, right? Go on sinning so that grace can increase kind of a philosophy. And so enjoy yourself, do whatever you want, indulge in anything that you want to indulge in. So that's the one issue. But Jesus says that he's dealing with that, he's dealing with her, he's giving her a chance to repent. He's talking to church leaders here. He's saying you're tolerating this. And you are allowing this disunity, you are allowing this practice to continue. Step up, church leaders, and confront people in your church about their sin. 
That makes you feel comfortable if you're an elder, right? I didn't know that was in the job description, but there it is. The sin of Pergamum was to re- that they needed to repent from tolerating, or uh, uh, Thyatira was to repent from tolerating sexual immorality and idolatry that was causing disunity and was causing death. Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we read uh, that the issue in Sardis was this. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Sardis was to repent of dead faith. What was happening in Sardis was that people were coming to church and leaving church, and that's it. No one was serving, no one was giving, no one was loving, no one was sacrificing, no one was witnessing. And Jesus says, if you keep this up, I will come as a thief. What do thieves do? Take everything you value. Everything. And Jesus will come and take everything you value. So he says, repent. The church in Philadelphia, we read uh, that there's no warning to the church in Philadelphia. Nothing. Just to hold on. I think we read in verse 11 and 12 that um, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name, the name of Jesus that we don't know yet. Now that's interesting to me. Because what Jesus seems to be saying here is that God's putting on one of those labels that says property of. This is my person. If you want to know who owns this person, who this person belongs to, it's me, it's God, and God himself will write it. God writes his address right on you. So that you become an embodiment of heaven on earth. But again, hang in there. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't walk away from the ways of God. Endure. Be a victor in this, he says. And then finally, the church in Laodicea. In Revelation 3, uh, verses 15 through 20. We're told that I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are a wretched, pitiful, poor, that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. They are to repent from self-sufficiency, materialism, where because of what they have, when they're challenged to take steps of repentance towards God, they go, I don't need to, because that's going to make me uncomfortable. And so this sin, Jesus says, you really have nothing. You're an embarrassment, and you need to be clothed and covered. So repent from self-sufficiency, materialism, and lukewarm faith. Now, as I said, and we read through all of these things, and Amy has suggested that we use this as a framework for us to evaluate us. Were you asking the question, is it true of me, as you heard these things? Probably not, simply, and you may have, and I applaud you in that, but you may not have, and that's the way I read this when I first read the notes, because I'm just trying to still take it all in, right? This is an information dump, so to speak, where you're just learning more and more and more. So let me just revisit that question again, understanding that if you can't come up with an answer, that doesn't mean you're guilty, that doesn't mean you're innocent and you don't need to repent. It just means that real repentance is difficult, soul-searching work that takes more time than we have this morning. When we have come face-to-face with God's holiness and remember the power and priority that Jesus has in us and the church, we can use this framework of Jesus' words to the seven churches and consider our lives and our churches. Where do we need to repent in our personal lives? Are we tolerating sexual immorality? Are we listening to false doctrine? I'm going to go here. Uh, One of the things that bothers me the most about Wednesday's attack on the Capitol are the reports that there were Christians there with banners that Jesus saves Well, they entered with weapons into the capital. Christian music was playing in a place where security was attacked and people died. Because people had listened to an enabling lie. That said. These are what these people are like. And so therefore, they they deserve this treatment. Christians. That's how I know we lack a theology of suffering. Jesus never said they will know we are Christians by how we fight. 
by how we love. I'm also convinced that the church is the best equipped to actually lead through this, through this massive divide that we see in our country. And it comes with a dedication to say, before I help you, let me make sure that I am repentant and walking with God. Am I following false teaching? Am I following a leader instead of Jesus? Am I creating division among Christians? Am I trusting in the wealth and power that I can possess, that I can obtain? Am I trusting in my earthly citizenship and my rights and my freedoms? And what do we long for the most? Are we building idols? What do we think about the most? What do we love the most? Where do we need to repent in our personal lives? Where do we need to repent in our church? What sin are we tolerating? Where do we exalt wrong teaching or worldly philosophy? Where are we allowing division to creep in? Where have we started to become dead or lukewarm in caring about our community and the world? Where have we become confident in our own wealth and power? Where have we become concerned that we have to have wealth and power? Are we even able to suffer for Jesus as a church together? I almost didn't preach that <laughs> when I saw the notes from Amy. I find them so helpful. Because again, it just reveals the fact that I'd rather deal with other people's sin than my own. I'd rather deal with the speck of sawdust in your eyes rather than the plank in mine. And as a leader in this church, I'd rather other people dealt with these questions and I focused on other things. But it's critical that we take the time to repent from anything that stops us from trusting God first in our lives. Because God isn't trying to do this so that he can punish us. He is trying to get us to repent so that he can save us from ourselves. And we know this because God doesn't leave us to our own devices. You notice that Jesus cared enough to give this message? It's hard medicine, but it's medicine. He's not doing this just to pick fun and to make fights, but he's saying, look, this is the result. If you don't get this right, this is what's going to happen. I love you. I have authority. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. You can trust me. I'm doing this for your best interest. If you are a victorious person, if you persevere in this person, don't you know the reward that you're going to get through repentance is greater than the pain of repenting? He does it because he loves us. He cared enough to share with the seven churches. And God gives us his word and gives us his Holy Spirit that combines together to be like a flashlight in the very depths of our souls, showing us where we need to repent. In the light of God's holiness and God's love and God's truth. So that we can pray like the psalmist prayed daily. Search me, O God. And know my thoughts. Examine me to see if there is any 
anxious way, offensive way that is in me and lead me in the way everlasting. But he doesn't just give us his word. He doesn't just give us his spirit. He gives us his church. The church is intentionally, specifically designed to help each other repent. And that's so difficult to do here in this kind of a gathering on a Sunday morning, right? This is hard, but this is why we have groups. Now, I know some of you, uh, groups, just that's not for me. We're changing our groups. That's coming soon. We're going to have various ways for you to get into relationships. But I find just experientially that when you get into a small group of believers, you begin to build better friendships than you can here on a Sunday morning where you say, hey, how are you? How are the kids? How's the wife? How's the husband? How's the job? And then you leave, right? Getting into a group, you spend a little bit more time together, you pray together, and you start to build a relationship that when you feel the need to repent, you can call on someone from that group and say, I feel like God wants me to repent. Can you pray for me in this area as I change? Can you offer wisdom? Can you offer advice? And we become better together as we lean on each other to repent. Let me close with this story. Um, the a friend of mine who led worship at one of the churches I've attended over the years loved to tell this story. Um, he would say he was a pastor of a church who felt like the church was just not listening to anything he said, but was not actually following the commands of Jesus and the, 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 the ministries of the church. They were not getting involved. They were just kind of coming on Sunday, you know, checking in, checking out, and that was it. And he was seeing it fracture relationships and really affect the witness of the church in their community. So he did this one Sunday. He got up to the pulpit to preach, and he said, love one another. And then he sat down. And everyone thought, okay, what's, what's happening? What's going on? So after a few moments, he got up again and came back. And, oh, he's going to continue. And he said, love one another. And he went and sat down. Now, at this point, everyone's kind of confused. And this happened three or four times. I don't remember kind of changes with whenever you're telling the story. But at the last time, he got up and he said, love one another. Someone's light bulb went off. And they stood up, and they went over to someone else in the congregation, put their arm around them. And he loved them or loved her, whatever. But they actively took the time in the sermon to love each other. And they started to see healing in their church. They started to see that coming together moment. It took a few tries, but people started to actively do it. What would it look like if our church, if we were to lead the way in helping one another repent? First, by repenting ourselves. And secondly, Availing ourselves to that thing that God would love to take a photo of. 
and say, this is my favorite moment in church. I want to give you a chance to do that this morning. Just a silent moment when we can pray. So with your head bowed and your eyes closed, ask God to search you. Have we tolerated sin? Sin like sexual immorality in our lives. If the Holy Spirit brings that to your mind, repent. Have you listened to false doctrine, followed a leader instead of Jesus, created division? Pulled back from Christian fellowship. Trusted in wealth, power, or earthly citizenship. Have you built an idol? Have you loved something more than him? Have you become dead? Or lukewarm in caring, caring about the community and the world around you? Have you become confident in what you have and possess? In your own wealth and power? And finally, are you ready to suffer in order to follow? Lord Jesus, we come and we ask that your spirit would teach and lead us. Cause us to repent as we need to repent. And may you help us to leverage the resources that you have given us, your word, your spirit, and your church. And may we never lose sight of what excites you about our church. The joy of seeing people repent and being made new. We pray this in your name. Amen. Just before the band comes and leads us in a song of commitment to that, I want to give you some questions that you can talk about this week. Uh, if you're in a growth group, They'll be uh, probably on your discussion list, but a great thing to be journaling uh, this week about. And they will be on our website. You can go to the Messages tab. You can click on the latest message, and you'll find a link uh, to these uh, questions there. Here we go. What was a time when you saw someone demonstrate real repentance? Question two. What makes it hard to repent? Question three, what are some ways that Christians can help Christians repent? And finally, this isn't really a question. It's more of a, if you need to repent, if God brought something to your mind, here's what to do. If you personally need to repent, how can your growth group or a trusted Christian friend help you make the turnaround this week? Repentance will help us turn towards holiness.